So I'm pleased this morning to continue with the theme of uh, equanimity, uh, cultivating equanimity in our meditation practice and in our everyday lives. I think I realized when I was uh, doing some further investigation of equanimity practice uh, when I was writing my book called The Engaged Spiritual Life that I I fell in love with equanimity. And so I'm really happy that equanimity came around on the cycle of these four qualities and that it's um, get to have two more times. And I'm, of course, a little bit, if I don't think, I don't, shouldn't think too much of the future because this is the last time on equanimity. <laughs> so I have to be equanimous about this being the last time on equanimity. Uh, but it is something that I and many people I know really uh, love the qualities of equanimity and particularly as it's expressed in this teaching of the Brahma Vihara that we've been exploring for uh, now this would be the ninth week. And so this, this way that the mature expression of all of the four qualities, loving kindness, compassion, joy, particularly joy in the joy of others, and equanimity, in their mature expression, integrate the other three. And it's a beautiful way to understand these very uh, deep qualities, that equanimity in its mature form has qualities of warmth, has uh, qualities of love and compassion and joy. And yet it can be with the whole range of human experiences including the hard stuff. I think I'll begin with a poem that is an equanimity poem by uh, W.S. Merwin. It's called Listen. And it's about that quality of equanimity, even with the difficult situations. Not just equanimity, actually, but also gratitude, that quality of warmth and and even uh, joy. With the night falling, we are saying thank you. We are stopping on the bridge to bow from the railings. We are running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We are standing by the water looking out in different directions, back from a series of hospitals, from a mugging, after funerals, We are saying, thank you. After the news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we are saying, thank you. In a culture up to its chin in shame, living in the stench it has chosen, we are saying, thank you. Over telephones, we are saying, thank you. In doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators, remembering wars and the police at the back door and the beatings on stairs, we are saying, thank you. In the banks that use us, we are saying, Thank you. With the crooks in office, with the rich and fashionable unchanged, we go on saying thank you, thank you. With the animals dying around us, our lost feelings, we are saying thank you. With the forest falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us like the earth, we are saying thank you faster and faster with nobody listening, we are saying thank you. We are saying thank you and waving 
dark though it is. So that relates to that question I asked last time at the beginning about equanimity and the way that it can be confusing. We're invited and really uh, requested by these teachings to develop equanimity. And what does it mean after a, a mugging with the forest falling faster, with suffering? What, is it, what does equanimity mean? Because in a way we're being asked to be equanimous and we're being asked to be equanimous with the hard stuff actually as well as the beautiful and good stuff. Equanimity is not just about the hard stuff. It's about being equanimous with beautiful things happening. So it keeps some inner balance. And again, it can be confusing. It can be disorienting. And so we want to explore a little bit further this quality of equanimity. And again, the long-term response to that question will be the integration of equanimity, which especially brings the wisdom factor with the qualities of loving-kindness, compassion, and joy. And that's what uh, W.S. Merwin was trying, I think, to say in that poem. Emphasizing a little bit more the hard stuff. (laughs) So last time I talked about the way that equanimity is a pivotal factor to develop in Buddhist practice. The last of several of the famous lists, the last quality to be developed among the Brahma-vihara, the divine abodes, the last factor among the um, factors of awakening, the last of the paramis or, or perfections, And it has certain qualities which we began to explore. (coughs) I seem to be thirsty. I have have an itch at the bottom of my throat, which doesn't usually happen when I speak, but it's happening now. And can I be equanimous about it and equanimously drink water as needed? We will see. (laughs) So, um, so. Equanimity has these various qualities, and I want to mention briefly some I mentioned last time, and then go on to look at some that I didn't go into so much uh, detail on, and talk, also talk in more depth about what we can call the near enemies of equanimity, the uh, imposters or distorted forms of equanimity that look like equanimity, like indifference or distance or, you know, I'm totally removed from life and I'm equanimous. You know, and we'll look at those in more depth and then, and then also look at how we practice equanimity in daily life and then we'll open it up and have some, some discussion. So I talked about the quality of balance, which is uh, literally what the word uh, upeka means. Upeka is the word we use that we translate as equanimity. And I reminded us last time that it's important to remember that equanimity is a translation. <laughs> it's an English word. And it has, when we use it, it has a little bit different connotations, but it's one that we use. So it's important to, as in with a lot of the uh, work that we do with the um, words from Pali and Sanskrit, it's good sometimes just to 
kind of sink in the connotations of the Asian terms. So we do that sometimes like with uh, even using words like yoga and karma and dukkha. <laughs> so just to know those connotations. So um, one of the literal meanings of uh, upekka or equanimity is balance. And uh, it's that sense really of having uh, seen everything, of being able to be balanced with the whole range of experience, in part because we've examined things. This is where it ties in with mindfulness practice. We are able to be more equanimous with uh, difficult states in particular, maybe anger or fear or sadness, because we've looked at these qualities in our practice. This is one of the direct ways that mindfulness practice uh, leads to equanimity. And it can give a very concrete meaning. When I've really spent some time hanging out and investigating anger, when anger comes up in my experience, whether my own or another person's, having looked at it with some depth, I'll be able to have equanimity with that anger in a way that wouldn't necessarily be there if I hadn't looked at it deeply. And that's true for a great number of difficult states. And some of what we experience in meditation which is to be expected and actually very helpful, is that we open ourselves up to the whole range of experience, which means that at times we have the difficult experiences. Particularly if we do retreats, we sometimes have difficult experiences. And I personally have had retreats which have been like my fear retreat, my anger retreat. I have great retreats also. It's kind of, for me, uh, especially in the first part of practice, it was kind of 50-50. Um, just to let you know. <laughs> For you, if you haven't done it, we'll, we'll give you 75-25. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, but there is a certain amount. I certainly had retreats where the, the, I had a lot, uh, could really look at fear, could really look at self-judgment, could really look at um, anger. And once one does that in some depth, they're, they're not the same. And it can really contributes tremendously to, to equanimity, that sense of balance. Uh, Gil Fronsdell has a nice sense of equanimity. He, he talks about it as grandmotherly, meaning that it's, it's warm, like a grandmother, but the grandmother has seen it all. <laughs> you know, she's not totally surprised by anything happening, right? She's kind of, oh yeah, oh yeah, kids are doing that, oh yeah. My grandkids are doing that. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. You know, so there's that sense of uh, equanimity there from, from knowing the range of human experiences with some familiarity. Another uh, sense of balance is balance around what are called the eight worldly winds, which we've looked at from time to time here. Do you remember what the eight worldly winds are? Also called the eight worldly conditions, lokadama is the term. Anyone remember what they are? Yeah. Yeah. They're coming out. (laughs) There's uh, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, and praise and blame. And Part of what we do with equanimity practice is when we actually can work with with a little more precision, we can look out for those 
eight winds, because those eight winds will tend to knock us away from equanimity. So there's pleasure in pain. There's that sense of, you know, again, it can have the meaning of on the cushion, meditating, I have a pleasant experience. Do I still keep awareness and keep my center with a pleasant experience where I just go, oh, wow, cool. Meditation's really working. Wonderful. <laughs> cool. Wow. Good. I'll, what did I do? I'll just have to, oh, I'll have to tell my friends. Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. What should I tell them? Oh, yeah. Um, right. <coughs> Equanimity has gone out the window. Or, or, uh, or, and, and with pain as well, we learn in part to be balanced when there are difficult experiences. It can be very small. We can be balanced with a, a fly landing on our forehead or a knee pain where we know it's not doing damage. Can I sit with that? And so the, there's training in becoming balanced with pleasure and pain. Gain and loss. How can I be balanced with something really good happening, something that's a loss. Again, it doesn't mean not to be feeling, not, doesn't mean not to be emotional, but it means can I be balanced, or to ask the question, can I be balanced, challenging. And as I mentioned last time, some of this to the logical mind can be paradoxical. In some sense, the logical mind has a hard time understanding how equanimity and compassion can go together, or equanimity and warmth can go together. It's not easy. Does that make, can you feel that sometimes? Like, you, you know, maybe with that poem that I read by W.S. Merwin, you know, there was maybe something in your mind saying, no, no, that's an unbalanced poem, you know, or it's, it's focusing too much on the negative, you know, you know, but how can we be with that and keep a perspective and also have compassion? It doesn't always um, prove easy to keep that balance. So gain and loss, fame and disrepute, having, a, having something happen which leads to one being looked down upon or looked up upon or looked up at in people's eyes uh, who matter to oneself. And we have those kind of experiences happening a lot. How can we have that equanimity in relation to fame and disrepute? Again, it doesn't mean just to be passive, let people trash us. But some of this is out of our control, right? How can, you, how can we be balanced with that? Yeah. The last is praise and blame, which may be the most difficult for us. People praise you, praise me. How can I be equanimous with that? Or how much do I say, do I let it, uh, as we say, go to my head? How about blame? You know, fear of blame is huge for many or most of us. You know, how can we be balanced with that? And a lot of, a lot of this uh, teaching of the eight winds, which we'll, which we'll follow some more uh, this morning, is to really name those qualities so that when they come up, we can say, oh, Time for equanimity practice. One of the winds has just blown me over. <laughs> you know, uh, oh, there's praise happening. Oh, there's blame happening. And it's really, uh, as in so much, the difficult thing about practice is not doing it, but it's remembering to do it. 
And so these uh, coming here or naming these eight qualities can remind us to look out for them when they occur. When is there pleasure and pain? Just to name on the cushion, this is pleasant, this is unpleasant. It's very, very helpful because it's in the naming of that that takes us away from our conditioned reactions. Potentially can do that. So that can help fill out that sense of, of, uh, of balance and really invite equanimity practice, particularly as a way to work with those qualities in our meditation practice, in our formal practice, as well as in our daily lives. There's the quality of evenness, which I mentioned last time, which would suggest that can I have a certain evenness no matter what's happening? Pleasure and pain happening, gain and loss happening. Is there a certain uh, evenness, almost like a center of gravity that I keep no matter what's happening? It really relates to this third quality, which we can call the quality of unshakability or imperturbability. It's really, in some sense, an expression of a deeper sense of evenness, which really means that there's a part of ourselves which is increasingly unshakable, doesn't get uh, knocked around quite so much. And I was, I was thinking of the, um, you know, uh, very interestingly, there are these qualities, some of these qualities of equanimity we find in our current president. In a very interesting way, isn't it? I think some, very attractive to a lot of people given the level of crises that he's dealing with, you know, with his administration. And I remember there were the, some of you probably saw the Saturday Night, Night Live skits. You know, I remember there was one skit where, who was it? Who was playing Sarah Palin? <laughs> Tina Fey. Was, was making a comment about how uh, Barack Obama's equanimity was just unreal. You know, she was saying, like, you know, you know, John McCain, he really, he's an angry guy, but don't look for that from Barack Obama. He's just as, like, <laughs> breathing angel whispers. <laughs> Something like that. So, but it was really commenting. And I, was, I remembered this uh, story that I had heard uh, about his mother's. He apparently got a lot of his equanimity from his mother. And this was the story of his mother, which is an equanimity story, which I thought I would read. This was from an interview with a woman named Fran Corton, who worked with his mother, uh, Anna Sotero, in Indonesia. <clears throat> and the question was, uh, in an interview, are there any particular stories you remember with Anne? Well, there's one that's really striking for me. I was driving my daughter to school, this is in Indonesia, to a theater rehearsal in the evening. In the middle of an incredibly chaotic traffic situation, which is typical, as you well know, in Indonesia, and a torrential downpour, my car stalled. And I got some guys to push the car. But when they did it, they pushed it so that one tire was in the canal. And I got out to deal with this chaos, and my daughter went around and locked the doors. <laughs> so now I had a stalled car with one tire in the canal with locked doors and the keys inside. <laughs> so I went to a nearby doctor's clinic that was right by the side of the road. I made a phone call to Anne Sotero, Barack Obama's mother, and I explained the situation of my car. And I remember her response so vividly to this day. She said in Indonesian, she said, Mana Hisa, how can that be? 
she was just very calm, gave me some good advice about what to do next. And I often think that when I see Barack Obama's coolness and his calmness in the face of whatever crises, it harkens back for me to that moment when she responded to my plea for help in the face of a very perplexing situation <laughs> that was for me so much at ease and clear. You know? um, and the interviewer says, so now uh, our listeners uh, will understand when Barack Obama is confronted with a massive global problem and he mutters, Mana, Manahisa? <laughs> and she says, that's it. How can this be? <laughs> I'm sure that these thoughts must run through his mind as he looks at the financial meltdown or the mess in Iraq and Afghanistan. Manahisa, how can this be? <laughs> So there, we, we cultivate that, that sense of uh, unshakability, you know, and we ultimately we do so by cultivating understanding and by really, I think, the mindfulness and the experience opens us up to be present with this range of experiences so that increasingly equanimity is a fruit of experience. It's not just wishing that it be that way. It really is in part the fruit of the experience by which we actually have looked at a lot of stuff, have looked at a lot of difficult situations as well as looked at our response to really wonderful situations. So it is in part connected with understanding, as I was mentioning, that there is a way that we can cultivate equanimity in part by cultivating understanding and insight. Do you remember the passage from the great Buddhist scholar uh, Nayanaponikatara, German monk, whose uh, essay on the four Brahma Vihara, the four sublime abodes, is listed on the reference materials, I think for the loving kindness sheet, but it's at the Access to Insight website. Wonderful essay, particularly how, about how they go together. And he talked about equanimity as unshakable, let's see, what's uh, unshakable balance rooted in insight, if, I'm, if I remember that right. Rooted in insight. So there is this quality of understanding that's important. And it can take a lot of different forms. It can be an understanding of a situation and all the causes and conditions that go into a situation. You know, I mentioned last time how for me, a pivotal experience of equanimity was being in a um, feeling like a, a chronic reaction to a, difficult, a person difficult in my life was starting and then just seeing, oh, I'm doing the same dance again. And I widened to see, oh, there's this big picture. This person has this conditioning. I have my conditioning. We're in this situation. And starting to see all the different factors. And it can give a sense of equanimity that can give a sense, uh, more a sense of balance. I can see all the causes and conditions. Uh, the poet Gary Snyder looks, says that when you look at a situation, it's best to keep a 4,000-year perspective. <laughs> and he's serious, meaning looking at the unfolding. Dr. Aryaratni from Sri Lanka tremendous efforts to end a civil war, says we have to have a 500-year plan. And that's big. It means looking at the really big picture. I think a very crucial part of equanimity at a time when there are these crises is can we understand this 
and more in an evolutionary way. As we get more familiar with the process of transformation, from looking at our own transformation or how it occurs in an organization or in a, uh, in a larger culture, we may have a sense, uh, if we have this wider perspective, that certain kinds of pain or difficulty or turmoil are part of the learning process. And we can apply that in a large scale to large-scale cultural and social change. You know, in, in some sense, there's a movement from an old system to a newer system. And that is always challenging, always has a certain level of pain. You know, we could probably look quite specifically at some of the changes happening and see that they necessarily come with a certain amount of turmoil. You know, when systems aren't working and they fail, there's a lot of suffering connected with it, even as they might be making space for something better. You know, so I think having that wider perspective can be helpful. You know, again, it doesn't mean one doesn't act compassionately or just as aloof, but it can be helpful for uh, looking at the situation. There can be, connected with equanimity, a certain level of joy. That even with difficult situations, I think that's what the poem from W.S. Merwin was saying, we can have a certain amount of uh, joy even with very difficult situations. Because there can be this access. Joy is almost uh, accessed as a way of perceiving. That's almost in our body. Our body in a certain quality of stillness and concentration is joyful. It's like the endorphins are working. And that those can be there even when things are difficult. There can be joy that we tap into. Meditation is very, very helpful in that way, that we can tap into joy partly by going to this this larger perspective. There's a very, let's see if I have this here. Where did that go? Well, maybe not here. But I'll just mention that one of my, I think, I think maybe it's here. One of my, uh, one of the most powerful books I've ever read are the journals of Etty Hilsom, who was a um, Dutch woman. She kept journals from 1941 to 43, Jewish, living in Amsterdam. Nazi occupation, 1941, and she eventually died in Auschwitz. And she kept a journal, and the book is called An Interrupted Life. And she was 26 when the journal started. She went through a spiritual awakening in those years, and she kept a very precise journal of her process. And so she actually, and eventually, she chose to be with the fellow deportees. Her friends had made a way for her to escape, and she chose to stay with people in her community. So, very powerful story. Uh, And I think there have actually been plays made. I talked once about Eddie Hillisum, I think in Santa Cruz, and someone came up and said, yes, um, I'm a a theater director. We've done a play here about her life. You know, so very powerful. And she said this when she, this was from her journals in, uh, at a um, 
what's called a transit camp, not a death camp, but a transit camp on the border of uh, Holland and Germany, I think 1943. The misery here is quite terrible, and yet late at night when the day has slunk away into the depths behind me, I often walk with a spring in my step along the barbed wire, and then time and again it soars straight from my heart. I can't help it, that's just the way it is, like some elementary force the feeling that life is glorious and magnificent and that one day we shall be building a whole new world. Right in the middle of that situation. H-I-L-L-E-S-U-M. First name E-T-T-Y. Yeah, very, very powerful, powerful book. So there can be joy even with difficult circumstances that, that I think are part of equanimity. And there can be a sense of faith as well that there can be this, maybe this deeper understanding that everything it can be there and there still can be, in, sen- in a sense, an affirmation of life and the whole process <clears throat> that I think reflects um, a maturity in the development of equanimity. You know, that we see at, at various times. Um, and to some extent it's connected with understanding and knowledge and experiences. There's a beautiful story from the life of Martin Luther King where he, uh, one night, he came home. He was, you know, it's incredible. These people were young. The, Eddie Hillison, when she wrote that, was 28 years old. Uh, <clears throat> Martin Luther King tells a story of when he was, he would have been uh, 26, 1955. And he uh, came home one night from a meeting. His wife and his, I think his uh, oldest daughter, who was uh, uh, very young, were asleep. And he got a telephone call. And there weren't answering machines in those days. (laughs) And I don't think, you know, I don't think people even turned off the ringers. And so he got this call, it was midnight or so, he got a call and it basically, the call said, you know, it used the N-word and it said, you know, we want you out of town in three days, we're going to blow up your house, you know, very real threat. And he tells the story of having uh, sat down at the kitchen table and he made himself a cup of coffee and he was really rattled was rattled particularly by the threat of his wife and his daughter being killed. And he thought, maybe I should give it all up. You know, maybe I should just go back to Atlanta. This is too much for me. I'm not the right person for the situation. It's really, you know, he was really having tremendous uh, doubts. And let me see, I have a passage where he, he, he went through all his tools for trying to be strong and nothing was working. He went for his theology books, not so helpful. <laughs> he read his great theologians. He said he took that cup of coffee and this is, this is how he later talked about the experience. I bowed down over the cup of coffee. I never will forget it. I prayed a prayer and prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause we represent is right. 
but Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now, I'm faltering, I'm losing my courage. And it seemed at the moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even unto the end of the world. I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. No, never alone. No, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. It's from a sermon because he was talking about that experience. But he had this experience where something opened up and it did turn out three days later his house was bombed and no one was hurt and he, he gave a press conference and the um, people there were amazed by his level of equanimity there was a kind of balance that he had with that situation which came out of some t- touching something, I would say touching something very deep, that gave him a kind of faith to be with that and a kind of equanimity. So, that's, so that even that quality of faith, it could be as we go more deeply with our practice, I think that quality of equanimity that is a kind of faith develops, which lets us really be uh, able almost to, re- I, I use the phrase sometimes, to, we just rest in being. We, we, in a sense, rest our lives in the very nature of being. And there's a sense that we can rest like, rest like that. And it comes by being able to be open to the challenging situations. And along the way, we, we practice. It really, this is really a continual practice helps us cultivate those more highly developed expressions, which I think I've been referring to in these two examples. We keep practicing. So this isn't some jump where we suddenly become like that. But it's really ongoing practice. We work with the small things. We work with the mosquito on the forehead. We work with the impatience at the traffic light. We work with the difficult co-worker and so forth. We also come to see the uh, ways that equanimity uh, gets distorted. And this is the teaching of the near enemies of equanimity that I mentioned briefly last time. The way that equanimity, when it's not fully connected with loving kindness, compassion, and joy, can become uh, more aloof. It can look like equanimity, but really be indifference. I can be, um, I can live a privileged life for example, and not be in contact with much suffering and have things going well, and I can say, I'm equanimous. Whatever happens is okay. And that could be a kind of distortion because it's not really linked with compassion. It's based on distance. There can be a kind of equanimity that can be resigned to things being the way they are and really not be actually responding to them. And that can look like equanimity, resignation or complacency. The classical near enemy that's mentioned in the text is indifference. A way of, uh, again, I think not having the four of the Brahmi Vihara integrated. When I was working on my book on the engaged spiritual life, I think partly because of my own background, which I think 
perhaps because I love equanimity so much, I know the near enemies very, very well. And I was able in doing the research and the thinking, reflection for the book, not just to have one near enemy of indifference, but I came up with 10. <laughs> because I knew them in myself, you know, the resignation, complacency, you know, a sense of privilege. There can be even a kind of denial that kind of looks like equanimity, you know. I'm not really opening to what's really there that's painful. And I think, oh, I'm equanimous, you know. It can be very intellectual. I can say, oh yes, I have an intellectual understanding of the causes and conditions of this situation. Mm. Yes, that's happening. Yes, of course that's happening. These people are suffering so badly, you know. And it can be disconnected from compassion. (coughs) So partly we practice by looking for those near enemies, by being willing to open to the difficult circumstances and cultivate that equanimity. And as we have mentioned a lot, and something that I learned so much in doing the month of retreat in February on these four qualities, which inspired me to to work with this series, um, we really um, ultimately integrate equanimity with compassion and love and joy. And that's why doing the practice of equanimity following loving-kindness is very skillful. And why for some of us, we may, I think like for myself, if I tend more to the equanimity side, which is really the wisdom, and I think there probably are gender issues related to this. You know, like the men may tend towards the wisdom side and tend to be more removed, and the women may tend generally. Hope, hope this is okay. I, I think it's my perception. Maybe tend more to the heart side or the compassion and uh, loving kindness and maybe the cultivation of the wisdom or equanimity may be more helpful. But for, I'll speak for myself that the equanimity comes a little more naturally and so it's really important to, to give more energy for the compassion, loving kindness, both as it were in meditation and in uh, action. And so I think we can really ask that question, how do I need to balance this out? Could I need, do I need more equanimity especially? Do I need more loving kindness or compassion or all of the above? Maybe all of the above is a good answer. <laughs> and so I think we can really uh, look for that and find ways to practice this as a standalone practice, developing equanimity, as something we cultivate in uh, d- uh, our meditation practice generally and in daily practice when we look for pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, where we look for the near enemies. So I think naming all these things really gives us some things to look at. And hopefully they will be uh, forming in our our minds as bells that go off. Oh, looks like a near enemy is occurring. And then we can practice. And it's that mature development that really is at the heart of uh, equanimity. And that's really what we aspire to. I think the people that we probably admire most, like King or like... Eddie Hillisum, or maybe like the Dalai Lama, who hopefully some of you saw a few days ago in Berkeley. They all, I think, ultimately manifest equanimity, but also deep compassion and deep love. And I think that's the kind of integration that we're looking for. So I'll end there and open things up to discussion. But let's just sit for 30 seconds first together.
you. <coughs> so some time for reflections or questions. Equanimity haiku. Cynthia, please. <laughs> I would just like, like you to talk a little bit more about um, equanimity, but then action. Action, yeah. Yeah. You know, how you be autonomous, which it is what it is. Yeah. But then, you know, action to make it, I mean, not, see, that's what I have. I have so much trouble with the whole concept of it is what it is. Yeah. But then, if I really accept it is what it is, why do I need to change it? Yeah. Um, well, that's where, that's where the integration with compassion is important. And so there's a lot we could say. I think I'm actually going to do a whole day long on this very question uh, in the fall, but I won't keep you waiting for a response till then. Um, but it's a great question. Yeah. Do you remember that line from Suzuki Roshi? He said, the world is perfect as it is, but it could also use some improvement. So that's paradoxical. Uh, 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 the, that's why I say, so... Be, don't look for total logical coherence right at the beginning. Um, so I do believe that equanimity, if it doesn't involve responsiveness, isn't that mature. And that could be a near enemy that confuses equanimity with standing back. In the short run, that can sometimes be helpful. So. Where does the responsiveness come from? And I, I mentioned that um, some, I think last time, there's some confusion around using the English word acceptance, which can mean two different things. It can mean acceptance that things are really like they are. And that can be confused with accepting that they need to be that way in the future. And we can have acceptance in the first sense without acceptance in the second sense. Acceptance in the first sense could be accepting reality as it is rather than fighting against it, acceptance in the second sense could be resignation or uh, giving in or actually not having the compassion. So let me say one more thing and then then Nancy had, I think, had a comment. So I think that's really where the um, compassion element comes in. It's also where we might actually just make, understand equanimity in league with responsiveness or with action. You know, when I was working on this question and writing the book, I expressed it through the theme of combining committed action with non-attachment to outcome. Like, again, paradoxical. You know, committed to continue responding, but bringing in the equanimity dimension. One way that gets expressed is by... uh, not getting fixated on narrow sense of results. And that, again, it can express itself from a long perspective. So you can have a long perspective. And um, it was like that quotation I read last time from Joanna Macy, that you have a sense that, uh, or it's like uh, there was a second century rabbi named Rabbi Tarfan. He said, uh, it, is not a, it is not for us to... Uh, desist from the work of our lives. We cannot not contribute, but we also know that we can't finish things. So things go beyond us, having a sense of longer perspective. 
you know, over generations maybe. Um, yeah, Nancy, did you want to add well, something? I, for me, equanimity <clears throat> actually leads to responsiveness. Yeah. Um, I get very stuck if I'm not yeah. in equanimity or if I'm not in acceptance. And, yeah. Um, curiosity is the other sort of ally that really helps me because I can work towards equanimity if I can remember curiosity. Um, like I can think I wonder why someone's seeing it this way instead of just going straight to they're wrong. I have to change this. Yeah, story. great. The idea that there's a possibility in there, never that they could be right, but at least that I could understand. <laughs> <laughs> but that actually re-centers me and leads me to a response that's more effective than otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, that's very helpful. And I was just I was just thinking of some of my own experiences, which I imagine quite common, that in certain situations where which seem hard, uh, some kind of action kind of breaks the ice or frees up the energy. Whether it's talking with a person with whom one has a difficult relationship, just taking some steps to respond to the situation. Of course, sometimes it's more skillful not to do that. But, but often, it might be just to actually take some steps, a difficult relationship, to take some steps, at least to try. I know that <clears throat> in terms of uh, social situations, when I was doing a lot of work with Buddhist Peace Fellowship, I remember um, sometimes we have to actually touch some of the emotions which are difficult to touch to permit a response. Sometimes our emotions can really be, get us stuck. We can get stuck in fear. And I remember with the I remember very precisely with the first Gulf War, uh, I had been very active and with Buddhist Peace Fellowship and putting out information packets that were sent around the world. And when the bombing started, I felt frozen emotionally. It so happened that we did two successive weekends of training to be facilitators for Joanna Macy's work which essentially involved us getting very much in touch with deeper emotions and letting them come out. And I remember just being very much in touch with sadness and anger especially and touching those in a group setting and something just got freed up and then I was able to act. So, so that's maybe where these other tools come in to be able to work with the underlying emotions. A lot of times we get stuck emotionally and it's very hard to act. And then equanimity can cover things over a little bit. So there's a lot of subtle issues, aren't there? Marty, please. And then Beth. I yeah. wrote an equanimity po uh, poem as we were discussing this that I'd like to We have an equanimity poem. <laughs> <laughs> Ripples and waves emerge. Would you like to maybe use the microphone? <laughs> Ripples and waves emerging from the tragedy of mass extermination and hate in the world, in myself, making opportunities for loving, caring, compassion, and wisdom, emerging from and intermingling and flowing on and on, <coughs> building balance or bringing balance to the universe and in myself.
Thank you, Marty. Beth, please. Um, I just wondered if you would speak a little more about um, discerning between equanimity and, um, <clears throat> say, indifference or numbness. Yeah, so the question is about uh, looking at um, some of the near enemies of equanimity. I think I'll probably close with this question. Um, at some of the near enemies of equanimity, indifference, numbness, what else did you mention? Um, maybe. Yeah. Well, they seem to kind of blend. Yeah. Bacteria. Yeah. Yeah. My one friend said, Are you in there? And I was sort of like, Well, I feel like I'm accepting it more, but I'm wondering whether I'm yeah. That's a great question. How do I how do I know that I'm actually equanimous with my friends or imagining I should be totally freaked out? <laughs> right. And I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating some, but they, they might do that. It's kind of an example. They might imagine, Oh, you should have your usual reaction or you're not really alive, Beth. What's you know, shouldn't you be just totally distraught and just, you know, regressing? <laughs> uh, so it's a great question, and um, I think ultimately it's about asking the question is, is fantastic. And then there are ways that we can ask. We can, we might do things, you know, we might sit, for example, and really sit there and be open to the emotions. We, we could be present and reflect on the situation and really have, give, give a space for whatever wants to happen to happen. Uh, if it's a, you know, we can actually take more of a quiet time um, and look at how our mind's working. Is it when something comes up, are we trying to shift it or get hooked on a certain equanimity? That might mean that there's the near enemy. Um, Um, so I think really to maybe elicit the feelings and be with them and then just see, see how the mind works, see whether it's um, becoming reactive. Um, probably to do, all, you know, you might concretely do some of the other Brahma-vihara practice, do the compassion practice in relation to the situation, deliberately bring up the emotion. In your, in your own mind. Those are a few things. Does anyone else have any suggestions on that or something you've, how you've answered that question, please? For me, it's, it's <coughs> how I, I uh, pose the question. Uh, yeah. I, I, I tend to be either or in my information uh, in yeah. a particular situation, and I, I try and shift it to a yes and. Yeah. Yeah. So there, so maybe to, again, it's the, the spirit of the all of our sessions of the Brahma Vihara, if I'm understanding you right, is to say equanimity and compassion. Is that, is that, yeah? Or in a particularly uh, painful situation, yes, the pain and. Yes, I can open to the pain and be with this, and uh, I can also have some balance with it. You know, it's like some, sometimes, two, two more thoughts, and I'll, I'll finish with that. One is that some, for some of us, uh, equanimity. It's not a familiar quality. 
And so we may doubt ourselves. Oh my gosh, I must be suppressing something. I'm equanimous. <laughs> and, and so to, to see that, a lot, a lot of what is helpful is to really watch those subtle little thoughts that are either uh, follow the equanimity or that follow the, uh, the emotion. So to really be aware of what the thoughts are. Maybe when you're uh, reflecting on the situation or you have some feeling and do you notice a thought that says, you know, I, am, you know, I don't want to deal with that. Well, of course, that kind of thought would mean that it might be a near enemy. Um, and of course, there are times when it's wiser not to deal with things. So it's not, a, not an absolute. So those, yeah, I think those are a few guidelines. Especially, as always, we want to watch the subtle thoughts. That's where the, some quiet is helpful. Yeah, great, great question. Thank you. So let's just uh, sit for about 30 seconds or a minute to close. Reflecting on what's been helpful this morning and how we might continue this practice of equanimity, but also of the other three, and keep them going in our practice, even when they're not the explicit focus uh, here. we close with the traditional dedication of merit, we remember that we do this practice not just for ourselves but for others. We cultivate equanimity, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, not just for ourselves but also for others. And we offer the fruits of the morning and of our time together out into the world for the benefit of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.